0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Thanks for joining us again as we inch through the gospel of Mark. Tonight, we're gonna be looking at Mark chapter seven, where Jesus confronts religious hypocrisy. But before we begin, why don't we just start with a little bit of prayer? Father, we thank you that you really want authentic community and a relationship with us, and we're grateful that as we read through the New Testament that this emphasis on a personal love relationship with you is something that not only resonates with us, but also is something that you want with us, and I pray as we study this that we can have a growing appreciation for that and also see that Through this relationship with you, we can actually grow spiritually and be transformed. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, we're going to look at what I call the heart of the issue, where Jesus really points to how the religious thinking of his own day sort of skewed the issue that was really the heart of the matter. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. But really, there are going to be three central issues that Jesus brings up. First of all, man-made religion offers a superficial solution to the human condition. Secondly, that man-made religion replaces true spirituality. And finally, that true change actually takes place from the inside out. So why don't we tackle the first one? Man-made religion offers a superficial solution to the human condition. In Mark 7, verses 1 through 5, we're told the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. He notes the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So these people in the first century that Jesus is talking to, they didn't wash their hands for the same reason we wash our hands today, to sanitize it from bacteria and germs. They did it because they believed that by touching something that was morally defiled, that by doing so, you could actually transmit sin. So they sort of had this superficial or even superstitious view of sin that it was sort of like a virus that you could transmit from someone else. In another passage, in Matthew 23, verse 24 through 26, Jesus elaborates on this. He, he condemns the Pharisees. He says, you blind guides who strain out the gnat and swallow a camel. You know, can you imagine that? Um, you know, you're, you're sitting there and you're drinking something. You notice there's a little, a little speck in your, in your water and you pull it out. And then you take a big gulp and you swallow a camel. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Woe to you! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup of the dish... And then the outside of it may also become clean. So this is actually something that they did. It wasn't just washing your hands in order to ritually clean yourself of moral filth that you might have picked up going to the marketplace. But people would actually walk through the market with their dish or a pitcher if they were selling something. And they believed that if a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, or a sinner walked in front of them as they were passing by, that actually the air that touched the outside of their dish or their pitcher was defiled. And so they would go through a ceremonial washing to clean these vessels to make sure that they didn't accidentally ingest sin. And so Jesus here is really condemning this way of thinking. He's saying, you guys first of all, need to clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside might become clean also. You see, the Pharisees, they were so exacting about these external things that really didn't matter, and it blinded them to the central issue in their lives, which was a heart issue. They would focus on these external religious acts, but at the same time, they would throw out a widow and evict her if she did not pay the rent. And so Jesus is saying to them, listen, if all it took was to do some ceremonial washing to take care of your sin problem, that would be so easy. But according to God, it's not that easy. Doing or performing some religious acts or rituals or observing calendar holidays that are holy, those things cannot change us. It cannot make us clean. And so that's the first thing, is that man-made religion offers a superficial solution to the human condition. Now let's look at the second thing, which is that man-made religion replaces true spirituality. Jesus goes on and quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, and yet their hearts are far away from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. He says to them, you have let go the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. Apparently, the issue that Jesus was facing with his audience was something that Isaiah was facing centuries earlier. And something that we still see today. He says, you hypocrites. Why were they hypocritical? You know, to be a hypocrite is to present one picture of yourself and to be the opposite in private. And so these religious people, they were projecting a picture of themselves where they were holy and that they were right with God. And yet Jesus points out that their hearts were actually far away from God. He quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13, where Isaiah says, these people honor me with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from me. How is that possible? To be very religious, to fill up your schedule with religious activities, and yet your heart be so far away from God? Well, the thing is, even though humans look at a fear, uh, you know, a, uh, Uh, furious religious activity as something that constitutes religious righteousness. God looks at things from a totally different standpoint. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we're told that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God isn't concerned with all of our religious activity. I mean, he wants us to do good things, but he primarily looks at the heart. That's what matters. In large part, because as we'll see later on, what what happens in the heart, having a transaction with God where we are drawing close to him, actually changes our actions as well. You see, man-made religion focuses on outward religious observance rather than inward heart attitude. You see, it's really easy to perform rituals or to observe calendar holidays that are holy. And I think people prefer to do that than actually draw close to God in a personal love relationship. It it often requires more effort to do that than it does to memorize a prayer and recite it over and over again. Not to mention, what you'll see sometimes is that with religious people, that actually these religious deeds or rituals become a way to leverage things from God. It becomes a way to actually manipulate God, to give them the things that they believe they deserve. And the way that I think that you know, we are exposed for our religious thinking is when we grow, grow angry toward God when we don't get the thing that we believe we deserve because of the the right way that we have lived. Not to mention, outward religious observance gives us a false sense of spirituality. You can regularly attend religious services or church uh, gatherings. You can go to numerous prayer meetings. You can learn how to actually say spiritual sounding things and yet your heart be far away from God. And the reason why I know that is because I've been there where I'm just simply going through the motions and yet I realize that I haven't actually drawn close to God in any meaningful way. Also, part of drawing close to God is admitting your own sin. And these washings, these rituals that Jesus uh, was condemning, those were actually preventing people from acknowledging that they had a problem before God, which is the first step in experiencing healing and real change. Well, in verse 9, Jesus continues, he says, "...you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions." For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. So he he says in verse 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. He not only points out that these traditions that they were following, they weren't even in the Old Testament law. These were additions that they had created on top of the law. But he also points out that these human traditions actually end up replacing God's commands. And then he points out one of the Ten Commandments contained in the Old Testament, honor your father and mother. He says in verse 11, but you say if anyone declares that what ha- might have been used to help their father and mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things just like that. So I think this bears a little bit of explanation. In their thinking, to dedicate something to God, to devote it to God, was higher than anything else. And so what these religious teachers and experts of the Old Testament law did is that they actually found a workaround. They found a way to circumvent one of the commandments, which is to honor your father and mother by allowing people to declare something as Korban. So let's say your family was in need and you were reluctant to give them a piece of property or to give them some money in order to help them out for selfish reasons. You could go and declare it Corban and say this has been devoted to God. And by doing so, you are no longer obligated to help your family with this money or this property. Now, the, the strange twist to all of this is that even though you declared it devoted to God or Corban, you could still use that property or that money throughout the course of your life and later on easily revoke that oath. And so what they found was sort of a legalistic way of circumventing one of the main things that God says we should do, which is to honor our father and mother. You know, we see something very similar today, where religious people find loopholes, religious loopholes to try and evade, different things that, that God has said. One example is Jewish a I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, you know, the Sabbath law says that you are not allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath. And so what God wanted to do on the Sabbath is for people to rest. And so from Friday evening to Saturday evening, you're supposed to relax and spend time with God and your family. And this was because God rested on the seventh day after creation, but also he wanted people, his people, to enjoy that Sabbath rest. And so there were, you weren't supposed to perform any sort of work on, on the Sabbath. Now, in the ancient times and even in... Um, more recent history. In Jewish ghettos, they had walls that demarcated areas that they regarded as eruvs. And these eruvs took what was a public space and sanctified it or made it holy as a private space. So within that area during the Sabbath, you could carry books, you could carry your children, you could carry whatever you wanted and disregard aspects of the Sabbath law. In fact, in Manhattan, uh, nearly the entire island has an A-Roof. Obviously, they have, they're unable to build walls around this area anymore, but they have connected buildings throughout Manhattan uh, with translucent wire spanning 18 miles that constitutes an A-Roof. So on the Sabbath... Jewish people don't have to really follow much of the Sabbath law because of it. An Aruv has existed in Manhattan for nearly a century, and on Thursday before the Sabbath, a rabbi drives and spans the entire length of the Aruv boundary to make sure that the lines are all intact in, you know, in preparation for the Sabbath. And so here's an example of a workaround or a loophole to get around the Sabbath. Now this this happens in other religious traditions as well. For example, you see that the Amish are not allowed to use modern technology. And so it's really difficult to raise a barn when you have to use hand tools. And so they came up with a really a really you know interesting and ingenious idea of retrofitting power tools so that they're actually compatible with Amish law. So what they've decided to do is use pneumatic tools and use compressed air instead of electricity. And that's because God created wind and not electricity. And so it was another workaround. I mean, I guess, you know, things like human ingenuity and one of the natural um, forces in the universe like electromagnetism isn't something that God created. Also, you find that Catholics actually have expanded the definition of fish. During the month of Lent, Catholics are to abstain from eating meat on Friday as a way to um, dedicate themselves and to sacrifice during Lent. And so if you're Catholic, on Fridays, you you grew up eating fish. Now, some clever priests actually decided that they were going to expand the definition of fish to include beaver meat. And so Catholics are allowed to eat beaver meat and even muskrat because they've defined it as fish. I'm glad that my parents never discovered that while I was growing up. Now, here's the thing. Human tradition often lowers the bar by making God's standards more attainable. And, you know, what you'll see sometimes is that, you know, biblical scholars or experts of the law will construct case law centering on one law. And what ends up happening is they find different loopholes that actually are based on the letter of the law that eventually deny the spirit of the law. And, you know, that's one of the real appealing things about human tradition is that human beings have created it and have tried to lower God's standard so that we can can feel as if we can attain God's standard. And yet God says, look, There's nothing that you can do to fix yourself. My standard is way higher than the one that you have set for yourself. You see, God creates a standard that's based on his perfect moral character. And so as human beings who are flawed, we always fall short of that. And from God's standpoint... Even one deviation from the law constitutes guilt. Look at what James 2 verse 10 says. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is actually guilty of breaking it all. You know, that doesn't make that much sense to us, and yet when you think about God's perfect moral character, any violation of his law is really an affront to his character. Now, let's turn to the last thing, which is that true change takes place from the inside out. In verse 14, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing that's outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house... His disciples asked him about this parable. Jesus said, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and then out of the body. I mean, sometimes when you read these accounts of the disciples, I mean, they seem a little bit obtuse. They're just like, wait, can you explain that for me again, Jesus? And he's like, okay, let me break this down to you in in the most simple way possible. When you eat something, it goes into your mouth and it goes down to your stomach, not to your heart. And then eventually your body extrudes it out. You get it? And interestingly, uh, in his explanation, Mark notes that in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, I know as a brand new Christian, one of the things that really puzzled me about the Bible was looking at the Old Testament law and the dozens of dietary laws that God lays out. Seemingly arbitrary. And the best explanation that I have heard about this is that the reason why God put forward these dietary laws was to reinforce to the Jewish nation that they are distinct from all the other nations. So this was one among many other things that God had put into place to reinforce in the minds of his people that they are to be different than everyone else. And it was obvious in the way they appeared and the things that they did that they were different from all the other nations. Now, what's interesting is that the Old Testament represents the old covenant that God struck with his people, Israel. But now Jesus ushered in the new covenant, one that is based on the Spirit's indwelling in our lives. And so now God is calling his followers no longer to stay separate and, and to be different um, physically and, and in our appearance from the rest of the world, but to engage the world, to be a part of the world, but to be distinct in the way that we live, our values and in our conduct, and in our speech. Well, finally, in verses 20 through 23, Jesus went on. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and that's what defiles a person. So he points out, he says, listen, it's it's not something that happens to you externally that defiles you morally. It's what's contained in your heart that's doing that. And I think modern Western people, see their moral problems in much the same way as something that is inflicted upon them by others. You'll often hear people today say things like, well, you know, I just, it's the way that I am. Or if it wasn't for the people around me or my upbringing, I wouldn't be this way. And I would agree that, you know, our genetics, our upbringing, our environment, it all affects us. But it becomes sort of a explanation for why I'm doing this thing that is morally wrong and from God's standpoint the issue is not the people around you or the circumstances that you're in it's you that you're accountable for your own actions that really what resides in your heart is the the cause and is what's responsible for our actions When you see something like murder, you can trace its roots back to bitterness that people harbor in their hearts. When you look at something like adultery, it actually takes root when somebody nourishes lust in their heart for someone else's spouse. Think about something like stealing. Why do people steal? It's because they're sitting there coveting something that isn't theirs. And so Jesus draws a straight line from the things that we do that are wrong directly to a heart attitude. And he says that by by having these thoughts and these impulses and these desires that we give into, that committing these evils actually defile us. Now, I think that when we look at the things that we do wrong, and our problem. You ask yourself, well what am i supposed to do about that? I know that many times throughout my life there there have been times where i i recognized that there was this nasty attitude issue or some sort of addiction that was was really destroying my life. And so there are times where i felt this sense of determination i'm going to fix this. I'm i'm going to try to try to make make this right in my life. And so I'd come up with a plan. I'd try to, to change myself. I, I'd put things in a place. And eventually what I would find is that over a course of weeks and months I would fall back into that same pattern of thinking. And so it was ultimately very frustrating. And you see the thing is um, when when we fall into this pattern it defiles us. You know, think about something like this. Imagine that you look at, you are spending some time reflecting and you discover that you are bitter at someone. And Jesus equates bitterness with something that's tantamount to murder since bitterness can in some cases lead to murder. And so let's say you decide, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to fix this by doing good works. And so you perform some rituals, you decide that you're going to abstain from certain foods during Lent, maybe you decide that you're going to uh, pray some prayers of penance, or maybe you're going to give some money to the church. You know, those things do not offset the guilt that you have. And the reason is, according to Jesus, our sin defiles us. Several years ago, I took my family to my hometown, Chicago, and usually when we go there, I like to kind of take my family to, to see different parts of Chicago that are unique, try to immerse them a little bit in the culture of Chicago. So, you know, we'll go to different landmarks and to museums and go to different neighborhoods. I show them my, where, where I grew up. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to give them sort of a taste of Chicago. So, we went and got Chicago-style pizza. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's not really a pizza. It's more like a pie. And so you get a slice of pizza that is, like, literally three inches thick. And it's not just crust. It's just all filling. And so I bought a pizza, and we, you know, took it and brought it back to the hotel room. And so, you know, we're all hungry and ready to eat, me and, you know, my, my, my wife and kids. And we opened up the box— right below the surface, I notice that there's something just floating. And so I dig in there and I realize there is a fly that had been baked into the pizza, okay? So we were sort of faced with two options, okay? One is what we could do is we could just pick the fly out and throw it away and just sort of eat around the affected area, or we could call the pizza place and get a whole new pizza. I'm sure some of you are just like, wrong. That's, that's not what you should do. should not pick the fly out. It's been defiled, okay? So what did we do? We, we went out and ordered a new pizza. And in the same way, when, when we commit sin or when we have a problem, spot treatment isn't enough to try to fix our problem. What we need is we need to be cleansed. We need to be renewed. We need to be washed. I love this passage in Titus um, 3, verse four through six, where Paul says, but when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so God isn't going to try to do some spot treatment on us because, of our, because we've been morally defiled. He, he intends to renew us. He intends to wash us clean through Jesus' forgiveness. You see, that's the central issue here is that we need forgiveness and that's the starting point for real change and spiritual transformation really what it comes down to is receiving the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers and the question is have you done that you know it doesn't matter that you grew up in a Christian home that your parents are Christians or it doesn't matter that you grew up going to church Being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. The central question is, have you received this forgiveness? Have you invited Jesus into your heart? And when you do that, God washes you clean. He makes you new. Also, this begins the process of real heart change. A long, long time ago, I remember hearing a phrase as I was sitting through a Bible teaching that really stuck with me. How can a messed up self fix a messed up self? And that resonated with me. You know, I mentioned how I would go through this process of trying to change myself periodically And that frustration I felt was me as a messed up person trying to fix my messed up self. And what we really need is renewal. We need true heart change from the inside out. And anything other than that, a total overhaul, is going to be superficial change. Let me illustrate this. You know, imagine... The United States decided to take a second run at prohibition eliminating all the alcohol in the United States which was a bad idea in the first place in my opinion but imagine the federal government sent out agents into people's homes into liquor stores and convenience stores and confiscated all of the alcohol that they found and yet they forgot to shut down the distilleries all of the brewer- the uh, breweries and factories that produce this alcohol, what would happen the next day? Alcohol would be produced and would be on the streets within 24 hours. And in the same way, us trying to change ourselves by putting into place these external, outward rituals to to sort of fix ourselves or to put into place these things that we hope will actually change us, that really just skims the surface, is never going to really issue an authentic change. What we need is true heart change. I just want to conclude by reading a passage in Ezekiel that I think really captures this vision. And it's something that God placed in the Old Testament in order to give us a vision of this kind of new life, this real change that happens from the inside out that he would bring about through Jesus and his new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 27 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Why don't we pray? Father, thanks that you have taken the pressure off of us to try to fix ourselves. We thank you that it is by your grace and your power and your work, not only that we get to experience this renewal, this cleansing through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross, but also that you promise to change us from the inside out. I'm grateful as I look back on my life, my life with you that even though I've had bumps uh, along the way where I've fallen, I've made mistakes, I've turned against you at points, that still you have committed yourself to changing me in my heart. And that here I stand today, almost 20 years after following you, starting to follow you, and that I have seen significant change in my life, that I have experienced real victory. And so we're grateful that the way that you tackle our sin problem is totally different than the way that we try to tackle it ourselves, and that your ways provide permanent, real change. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.